Well, let's open in prayer. Lord, of all the promises that we can find in this world and all the promises that we can find in, in the things of this world, nothing compares to the promise that we have in you. God, we can only know of that promise by looking into your word, by reading what you have spoken and inspired and brought into our hands. And so I ask, Lord, that you would that you would let us read with attentive minds and attentive hearts today. Conform us to your image in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Um, today we're going to be reading what, I, what I'm calling a, uh, a living parable. And what I mean by that is that it's something that happened in the disciples' lives that Jesus turned into a parable, into a, a, a story that had a purpose and... Um, and we're going to be reading something that has really, honestly, in the last couple days affected me more than I, more, more than I uh, thought would happen. Um, not to say that I'm not affected every week. That's not really what I mean, although it sounds like what I mean. Um, what I mean is that when I read it, I, 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 I got a general sense of, oh, wow, I'd like to, I think this is what I'd like to preach. And usually what happens is I read something and I'm like, yeah, this is probably what I'd like to preach on. And then when I read commentaries, I'm like, oh, okay, that's not actually the point. There's, there's more that's in the context that I'm missing. And, uh, and this week was a little bit different. So this living parable that we're going to be reading today is something that's stuck in the apostles' minds. It's something that, that, that caused them to remember it. And if we think of the four Gospels, right, we've got, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Matthew is the Apostle Matthew. He wrote the, the book of Matthew. The, 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 the Gospel of Mark is historically recognized to have been given to, to John Mark by the Apostle Peter. And then we've got Luke, who was a dedicated disciple, but not an apostle. And then we've got John, written by the apostle John. And of those four gospels, two of them contain this. There's a lot of overlap between Mark and Matthew. Uh, Mark was the very first gospel written. And then Matthew came along and, and added some more theological themes, uh, some, some different focuses. And sometimes there's differences between the way that Mark words things and Matthew words things. And we're going to hit one of those today. I'm going to talk about it very briefly. But before we go on, let me read our passage. So we're Matthew 21, verses 18 to 22. Let's go ahead and read. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This is the word of the Lord. 
Now, before we dig into the actual text, I want to address the interpretive challenges. Uh, the parallel passage to this would be found in Mark chapter 11, where it says that this tree uh, wasn't noticed to be withered until later. But if you listened uh, to verse 19, you read the sentence, and the fig tree withered at once. Now, there's two explanations to this. Uh, one is that maybe some of the disciples didn't notice that it withered at once, and so they went on with their day, and then when they came back, uh, they noticed that the fig tree had withered, and they go, isn't that the tree that you, you cursed Jesus? And then Jesus repeats what was said. Um, so that's one possibility, is that this is just two different perspectives on the same incident. Um, the other explanation, which is what I think is more probable, is that when you think of a withering tree, when you think of a dying tree, does it happen immediately? Does it happen overnight? No, it takes a long time. If you notice rot in a tree, um, it, it's, it's usually going to take quite some time to rot out. But when the disciples then come back and see it, they, they think, wow, that happened. That must have started happening immediately. And a tree withering in a single day by horticultural standards is immediate. Um, so the, the, point, the point that I'm making here is that it doesn't matter which of those two explanations you abide by. You could say, oh, these, these, well, obviously the Bible's wrong because it, it says these two different things happened. Somebody must be lying. Well, no, that's wrong. <laughs> um, it's just wrong. Because otherwise, two apostles would not contain this in their gospel. Otherwise, this wouldn't stick in the memory of the apostles for decades after the fact. Which, if you think about when the first gospel was written, Mark was written somewhere between 61 and 65 AD. Jesus died somewhere between 31 and 32 AD. It took about 30 years before somebody figured, hey, we should write this stuff down. But God inspired every single word. And so therefore, we can trust that this happened. I really think that it was later in the day and Matthew's just truncating. He's just taking these events and making it one story. Because if we turn to Mark chapter 11, we find that some stuff happens in between. And Matthew has this tendency to summarize. He has a tendency to be more accurate with numbers and less accurate with, with the order of events. <laughs> Um, leave it to a tax collector to do it. Uh, so, so that's what I think. So again, the point is that both of these accounts are valid. It's just a matter of what you think about the word immediately. Because the Greek word that's used there for at once, as the ESV translates it, it also just means quickly, very, very, very quickly. We can talk about a mudslide and use the same, ver or the same word to describe the mudslide. The mudslide doesn't finish immediately. Anybody who's seen a mudslide happen knows that it kind of takes a while for the mud to continue settling. But it happened immediately. So we just have to make sure we're applying these words in the way they're intended. Now, something that we do get from Mark chapter 11 that we don't get from Matthew is that Jesus saw this tree from afar. In Matthew, he, it just says, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside. But in Mark chapter 11, verse 13, we read, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf. 
So when we, when we think about fig trees, when we think about trees in general, once they start producing leaves, it's not long before they flower and they turn in, they, they actually start producing fruit. At least that's the way it should work. And apparently this tree looked quite impressive. It had enough leaves that Jesus looks at it from afar and goes, hmm, there must be some, some figs on that tree. Look at all those leaves. And so Jesus comes in and he inspects it. And he finds out that it actually had a false pretense for life. It, 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 it was declaring itself as if it had life, but really it had no fruit. And that's what we see. That's why Jesus cursed it, is because he was hungry. Now, obviously, Jesus, wherever he was staying, probably with Mary and Martha, he could have asked them, hey, can you make me breakfast? But for whatever reason, he didn't. And so he heads back to Jerusalem, and he sees this tree, and his stomach's growling, and he goes, oh, I'm so glad that tree's got figs. And when he approaches it, he finds that it's actually barren. There are actually a lot of people in this world who claim to have life, who might even look like they have life. And if we look at them from afar, we find out that they, that, that they should have life by all that we can perceive of them, but in fact they are just barren and fruitless. They might, these people might look to be in bloom, but upon closer inspection we find that they are not. And I, I like to call this, or not I like to call this, but I would think of this as a form of deceptivity, uh, where we can look at something and think, wow, what, how alive that person is, or how alive that group is, or even how alive that nation is. But in reality, they're just very good at propaganda. So uh, a way to think about this, we've had some wacky weather the last couple weeks, haven't we? We've had rain, we've had sun, we've had nice warm weather, and we've had freezing temperatures at night, and we've had uh, a windstorm last night, which was pretty exciting to wake up to. And because of this wacky weather, some of the trees have been tricked into thinking that it's further in the season than it actually is. And so if you were to go in the back of the property here, you'd see a tree that has blooms all over it. I mean, it's just covered in these beautiful, beautiful petals. I can't tell you what sort of tree it is. Uh, a tree, a, a, a good tree to me is a tree that I can chop down. I'm just kidding. Uh, but <laughs> but, but it, it looks like it's in bloom. But unfortunately, because of where we are in the season, we're not quite to spring yet, especially according to some stupid rodent. Um, the, we, we can trust that the reality is that th that tree is going to waste energy producing these blooms. And it might actually die because of it. Now, in this case with Jesus, it's not, it's not misplaced uh, seasons. Um, but, but Jesus was expecting it to bear fruit because of how in bloom it was. We also read in Mark's, uh, Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 11, we read that it actually wasn't even the season for figs. Uh, he says that also in verse 13. When he, when he, uh, oop, uh, he went to see if it had anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but, but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Jesus promises that he will return at an hour that nobody expects. He promises to weigh us by our fruit. By, um, he promises to, to come on a judgment day. 
We're told by the Apostle Paul to, well, that Timothy was told by the Apostle Paul to preach the word in season and out of season. So here was a tree that looked like it had much life, but truly it was fruitless. Uh, like I said before, many a nation, group, church, or person might, might have the same appearance. They might look like they have, they're, they're full of life, but then once they're examined, you find there's nothing nourishing on, on them or in them. So just like how Jesus noticed this tree from afar, uh, we find that, that some places that appear to have life attract many. Um, I think, I, I hate to use this example, but, uh, but a, a gentleman named Tulian Chivijan, uh, who was really big uh, in, in, in evangelical circles, he was actually one of the grandsons of Billy Graham, one of the, you know, 500 or whatever. Uh, but, but he was one of the grandsons of Billy Graham, and Tulian Chivijan had some kind of alarming theology. Uh, we would call it antinomianism. He was against the law. He said that there's basically no amount of sin that you can do after becoming a Christian that would indicate that you are not a Christian. And that sort of deceptivity uh, ends up playing out in someone's life. But before, before I get to where he's at now, I want to point out that he had one of the biggest churches in Florida. Um, he had one of the most lively churches in Florida. He had some of the most amazing worship music of churches in Florida. And it attracted crowds upon crowds upon crowds. The church had wildly uh, successful programs. And they were a part of a denomination, but they were predominantly contributors to this denomination instead of uh, recipients of help from this denomination. So they were rolling in the dough. People like to retire to Florida, I understand. I don't know why there's gators there. But, but Tulian Chivijan, eventually, it came out that he cheated on his wife, committed adultery. And not only did he commit adultery, but his excuse was, well, she cheated on me first. Why isn't it okay for me to cheat on her? She cheated on me. I can cheat on her. It's all right. There's no law against that. Oh, wait, actually, there is, Tulian. <laughs> if, if we read something called the New Testament, we would find something about that. Maybe, maybe even a few chapters ago in the Gospel of Matthew. So Jesus promises to examine each and every one of us on Judgment Day. Actually, the, the Apostle Paul says it pretty well in 1 Corinthians 3. Um, he says, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. God is going to test what we do by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on uh, the foundation survives, the foundation being Christ, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Um, another fallen pastor, Art Azurdia, once said of that passage um, that what we do will either end up tested and tried and true and glorify God, or it will end up on the ash heap of insignificance in the kingdom.
So this, this, this particular passage has been working through me all week because I have been envious so, so envious of churches that are in a better state than ours, that might have the pews full, that might have more people in the pews than watching online. Just, I, I mean, I could be guilt-tripping people online, but I'm not actually meaning to. But churches that might have, might have money in the bank, money in the bank to pay insurance, <laughs> which we do have, but money in the bank that, that they don't have to worry about stuff. I've networked with pastors of churches where they say, man, we've really shrunk recently. We're down to 600 people on a Sunday. And I sit there like the doofus in the corner, twiddling my thumb, saying, please don't call on me. Lord, please don't let them call on me to say how things are going. I've, I've, I've struggled these last couple weeks. But I've also been contacted with pastors, or by, uh, I've, also, I've also noticed churches uh, that have lots of life on the outset, but frankly, there's no fruit. Now, what I, what, what I want to bring up for that is I, I want to raise the question, what exactly is this fruit? What it, what, Jesus expected figs from the tree, but what does he expect from us? When we read the word fruit in the Bible, what does it actually look like? A church that might be deceptive or a person that might be deceptive and have the appearance of life from afar, what are they not bearing? Uh, trees that look to be alive yet have no fruit, I would, I would classify as this. They have a form of godliness yet deny its power. Uh, I get that from 1 Timothy 3. And it's a passage that some of you might be familiar with. Uh, Timothy writes this, but understand this, that in the, or I'm sorry, Timothy, Paul. Paul writes this to Timothy, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, seat. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Man, you think about that. That looks like an awful person, <laughs> right? That looks like a wicked person. Terrible even. How honestly could anybody look on this person and, and think anything other than what a wretched soul? But then you come to verse 5. This is what Paul writes, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. What? How can somebody be that list of things and yet have the appearance of godliness? How can they be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy? How can they be these things and yet have an appearance of godliness? Paul goes on, he says, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That's how. That's how. They know how to sneak in and, and capture the weak. 
whether whether woman or man, somebody who's 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 absolutely burdened with sin and and they don't know how to think about things, they don't know how to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, and these wolves sneak in and they snatch people like this. Now again, that raises the question: what is fruit? In God's eyes, what actually is fruit? What would be somebody who has the appearance of godliness and operates under its power? Well, three things. One, if we, if we know any verse in the Bible about fruit, it's Galatians 5, 22 to 23. The fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, so uh, Paul writes this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So the fruit is this, it's these things. Now I emphasize the word fruit because Paul emphasizes the word fruit. Now, Rick grows apples. Rick, do your apples taste the same every single year? No. Are they always apples? Yeah. You never get a mango from your tree, right? You've never got a banana. You've never got a peach. Uh, so so when, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, what, what is harvested from, from, from the tree of your life might have different flavors and different seasons, but it is always these things. If you truly know Christ, if you truly love God, then the fruit that you produce is always going to have some amalgamation of these flavors, some mixture of these flavors, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's always going to have those things. Those are not separate fruits, but they're a single fruit throughout all of your life that always has these, these, these flavors just in different levels. So there is one fruit, one thing that the Bible describes as fruit. What else does God describe as fruit? What else does the Bible describe as fruit? Well, one way that we produce fruit, according to John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 8, is that we repent. And I want to kind of drive this home. If you want to bear fruit for the Lord, then you do it in keeping with repentance. You can double check that. Matthew 3, 8. He sa John is saying it to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. After calling them a brood of vipers and, you know, the, the wonderful things that, that Pharisees love to be called. Uh, the way that John says that, too, is actually really wonderful. Bear fruit in keeping with, in continuing in repentance. Uh, we had this conversation in Sunday school this morning. Uh, we have to keep repenting. If we, go through, if we go through a day and we go, man, I don't have to repent of anything I did today. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. You need to repent of that. <laughs> you need to repent of that attitude. Because if you truly want to bear fruit for the Lord, you have to keep with repentance. Keep on repenting would be another way to say it. So if, if fruit is these things, if fruit wrought, brought by the Spirit is these things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, so forth. 
And if we get it by repenting, then what would, how else do we produce fruit? What else does the Bible describe as fruit? Well, it's holiness. L lived holiness is ultimately the fruit that God requires. If we were to turn to 1 Peter, we would read where, uh, where Peter quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Leviticus, which is everybody's favorite book to go through uh, for, um, for their Bible reading plan. Nobody struggles with Leviticus, except me, right? I'm the only person that struggles with it. Uh, but if we were to turn to 1 Peter, we would read where Peter says quite clearly that we need to continue in a holy life. And this is where something like Thule and Trevigen's theology does not match up with what's required of, of, uh, of believers. Um, maybe it's 2 Peter. Maybe I messed this up. I think I messed this up. Nope. Anyway, uh, he says, be holy for, uh, for I am holy. That's what the Lord says. So therefore, we are supposed to, there we go, 1 Peter 1. That's what I messed up on. Verse 13, therefore, preaching, uh, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If we were to build a theology of fruitfulness, we would find that fruitfulness is always synonymous with faithfulness, with living a holy life with searching after God, with going for Him. So when I think about these, I, I can think of people in my life that I go, man, that person is absolutely a strong believer. But then when I go and I evaluate their life, when I spend time with them, I find that they were more as if they had the appearance of godliness. The closer I got to the tree, the more I realized that there was a deceptivity of life in them. Have you ever had that experience? Maybe a person is a maybe someone is a different person behind closed doors. Maybe there's kind of a facade that they put on when they're in church, but then once they go home, you find that they're quite ruthless and, and mean and short-tempered. Like the snake movie. Nobody else knows what that is. Anyway, but <laughs> but but how do people get trapped by these deceivers, right? Jesus approached the tree and he saw that it had no fruit and therefore he cursed it, right? We don't have that same ability. We can look from afar and go, man, look at, look at how impressive that tree is. Whether it's a, ch a church, a nonprofit, even a nation, frankly, Russia looks a lot more impressive from the outside. Um, I'm just, just gonna say that. That goes on the internet. I mean, if Putin wants to nuke me, I know where I'm going. Anyway, but, but Russia is a lot more impressive until you start seeing some of the villages that suffer. North Korea looks a lot more impressive if you just watch North Korean propaganda, but then you hear of the people starving to death in other provinces. These are things that we can look at that might have an appearance of life until you examine it more closely. So how do people get trapped by these deceivers? How do people get sucked into these, these lifeless churches like, uh, 
like Joel Osteen's church or, or, or Kenneth Copeland's church or, 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 or Creflo Dollar's church, which I think I've said this before, but if you're a prosperity preacher and your name is Creflo Dollar, I really don't. I, I, I don't count you among the faithful anyway, but, <laughs> but the, but how do people get trapped by these? Well, again, we, we read it in second Timothy three. It's people who don't know their doctrine. They don't know how to be faithful. Even though we have a great list of abhorrent patterns of sin in 1 Timothy 3.1 and following, somehow these people appear to be godly. But what we find when we examine them more closely is that their, their godliness is much like the leaves on the fig tree. They're walking hypocrites. Now, what I think is interesting about this particular instance in Matthew 21 is it's following a series of condemnations of the nation of Israel. Uh, Jesus is calling out the hypocrites. And ultimately, this tree is hypocritical, right? It looks like it should have fruit, but then when Jesus gets close, it has no fruit. And Jesus deals swiftly with it. Whether it took... A minute or a day to wither this tree, it was still miraculous, it was still Jesus cursing it. But but that doesn't always happen in our in our world, but but then again it does sometimes. Like I think of how quickly Tulian Chavijan fell from grace. I think of how quickly it got circulated in news media where people are like Billy Graham's grandson think, thinks it's okay to cheat on his wife because she cheated on him first. I think of how quickly his church fell. I think of, uh, I think it's amazing that he still has the Twitter handle Pastor Tulian and he doesn't just change it. I think it's also not amazing because I think of how prideful that would be. But anyway, I, I, I think of how quickly some people fall, but then others don't. And I don't think it's because Jesus has not yet examined their work. I think, frankly, there's a caution in this that we need to not become hypocrites ourselves in evaluating hypocrites. We should not stand self-righteous or better than others. We shouldn't look on, on the work of some other church and go, oh man, yeah, that place, oh, they're terrible. They're going to die and God's going to laugh as he burns their, their good works, right? Because the reality is that God can cause immediate growth, just like he can cause immediate destruction. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, writing on this passage, well, preaching on this passage, says this. He says, whenever we see any standing out prominently and making bold profession, what should be our thoughts about them? I answer, do not judge them, Matthew 7. Do not fall into habitual mistrust. Your Lord did not stand at a distance and say that tree is worthless. No, he went up to it with his disciples and carefully inspected it. These prominent persons or churches may be wonders of divine grace. Let us hope and pray that they may be. Have you ever thought about sitting down and praying for a false teacher's church or church movement? and praying that God might work an incredible divine grace on them.
because I hadn't until I read that. Which is funny because I apply that principle in a lot of other ways in my life where, where I, I even pray for the repentance of Putin. <laughs> but I, I, I'm not so willing, maybe because of my position as pastor, maybe because of my own hardened heart over, over deceptive doctrine, uh, or may, for whatever reason, I don't, I don't quickly apply that. And, and Mr. Spurgeon uh, was, was an instrument of grace by the Holy Spirit in me when I, when I read that. So we should be cautious not to become self-righteous and become hypocrites in condemning hypocrites. So what can we learn from this text, right? How can we apply this to our lives? Well, number one, we don't know when the Lord is going to come and examine our faults. We don't know. We don't know when he's going to come and examine our fruits either. But we, don't, we, we have to be ready in season and out of season, right? Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, which we don't know when it's going to happen, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Repu reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That applies to you just as much as it applied to Timothy and as much as it applied to me. We have to be ready in season and out of season. Jesus illustrated this by cursing a fig tree that was out of season. How do, you, how do we do it? Well, like a good tree, we must nourish our roots with good study of God's word ourselves. We have to drink deep of the rains as the word is preached and taught to us by others and absorb the light of God's radiant glory in our daily lives. If we do those three things, right? Think about a tree. What does it do? It eats nutrients from the grounds. It absorbs lights, light, and it, uh, it, it has water rained on it that it brings into itself if we do those things, we will produce fruit. And I want to also mention that fruit does not mean numbers. Nowhere in scripture is fruit applied to people. Meaning, meaning it, you are only fruitful if you bring people in the door. You are only fruitful if you are, if you are evangelizing and making people into converts. That's not in there. What's described as fruit is life transformation. If we do those things that a tree does, we will produce the fruit of holiness, the fruit of the Spirit, and the Lord will be pleased with us instead of causing us to wither at the root like he did the tree. Now, what about the rest of the passage, right? You might, you might be sitting there going, Scott, you only went through two verses, man. There's two more verses. Are you not paying attention? Well, three more verses. Verses uh, 20, 21, and 22. There's three more verses. Well, I want to point out that these verses have been abused in the past. Uh, we discussed this back in a couple chapters ago, also in Matthew, about the moving of the mountains. But, but I, I, want, I want to point out that it's incredible that those who claim that they have enough faith to move mountains have never moved a mountain. When, when, when have you ever met someone who went, yeah, I got enough faith to move mountains, therefore I prayed, and Mount St. Helens moved a couple feet. Yeah. Or I threw, I threw Mount Hood into the, in, into the ocean. Didn't you guys see it? You would wonder if that person's crazy or not. 
So Jesus is not saying literally move mountains. He's being figurative. It's obvious he's being figurative. The if you have faith, remember the Greek word uh, pistis, which we translate faith, also means trust. So if you trust, if you have trust in the Lord, um, that means that we're going to be nourishing ourselves like we discussed before. And one who truly trusts in the Lord will not doubt, right? But, but he will, and when he does doubt, he'll, he'll preach God's word back to quell the stormy seas of doubt that, that, raise in us, or that, that rise in us. Doubt really does destroy things. Uh, Matthew Henry said, uh, doubting of the power and promise of God is the great thing that spoils the efficacy and success of faith. But all I want to say about the, the closing verses is, is, is this. I found that the Lord does remove obstacles of his faithful, but he does it usually by granting peace. Uh, those that might have insurmountable obstacles in front of them, they don't, the, the obstacles don't tend to just move out of the way, but the faithful tend to find themselves on the other side of the obstacle when they trust the Lord as they go through it. They might incur damage. They might find themselves hurt or scarred by the mountains, or maybe they find themselves scratched by fruitless trees. But the Lord walks them through a valley that didn't seem to be there when they walked up to the mountain in the first place. Jesus also might be referring to something cultural. Um, good teachers in Jesus' time were actually called mountain movers. I could tell you the Greek to impress you, but it doesn't really matter. But, but good rabbis in Jesus' time were actually literally called mountain movers. So uh, the, the reason they were called that is because they could stir a crowd. They could enact cultural change. And what Jesus is saying here is that his people will do the same, but not by their own wisdom, not by their own power, but by trusting in him. And Jesus is the one that ends up moving the mountains, not just the people. That's why verse 22 says, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will be granted if you have faith. Meaning it's not the asker that's doing it. It's the grantor that's doing it. So if you know some people that are deceptive, that act like they deceptively have life, if you know people that are not rooted in good doctrine, but they're being tortured by some false church, some false group, maybe a cult, maybe bad theology, if you know these people, if you truly believe that God can bring about repentance, pray it. If you truly believe that people can, can be brought back from, these, from being crushed under these mountains, then pray it. Because if they aren't brought back, then they will meet a similar end to this fig tree. They'll be cursed at, cursed at the root. And they'll wither themselves up. And you'll watch them untangle, not like a ball of yarn that's rolled, but like a ball of yarn that's shaken, knotted, and destroyed. Like I said, this passage really affected me this last week. 
I have friends that have given in to false teaching and I seem to have more every single day that I hear of. Friends who have given into a progressive gospel. Friends that have been given into by, by a self-help gospel. Friends that have been, been, been conquered and, and falling into groups that I would claim are heretics. And I don't understand why people fall into them. And the reality is that they, they fall into them because they don't know God's word and they don't know God. Maybe they've tasted and seen of the heavenly gift, but they've never drank of it. So therefore, I, 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 I implore you all that we be mountain movers, not of ourselves, but by praying to the one who built the mountains. Pray for those. Pray for repentance of false groups and churches and cults and, and, and pray that, that they not end up like the fig tree. But those, those appearances of life actually are found to be fruitful in the end. So pray with me now. Lord, I want to lift up churches that teach a false doctrine. I want to lift up those who are trapped by false doctrine. And I pray that you would grant them freedom and repentance. I pray that you would produce fruit, that you would cause them to produce fruit, the fruit of faithfulness, the fruit of the Spirit. I pray that there would be a movement in the, the, the prosperity gospel group, <laughs> that there would be more who repent, more in the mystical miracle movement who come out of it and, and declare your true gospel. And I pray, Lord, for us. I pray that we would not be, uh, that we would not find ourselves struggling under mountains, but as a church, we would find ourselves moving forward in the peace that you bring. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. May we heed the warning that Jesus will examine our fruit one day, and may we, may we be found faithful and fruitful in that time. Go in peace, saints. <laughs>